all you vampires. One. One turning point in my long-standing reception of horror between occult and technical media, which my 2016 book, The Psycho Records, documents, was my 2008 invitation by Art Forum International interpret the updating of vampirism in the TV show True Blood. A new integration of the vampire seemed to be offering a stay against the thrill-a-kill consumerism of the unidentified dying zombie that had been in the ascendant since 9-11. I concluded, however, that what was left lurking in the divide between undeath and living death was the psycho, our most uncanny double at close quarters. There, but for the grace of the good object, go I. Since psychoviolence, which was carried forward but without agency as zombieism upon the termination phase of slasher film therapy, was renewed intact in the Saw franchise through Compact with the Devil. I also concluded that what we were watching in Morning's Light was more a shake-up than a succession. Psycho-murder, zombie-killing, vampiric replication, and infernal instruction are split-off phases of the mourning process awaiting integration. A close look at the argument of Freud's mourning and melancholia shows over and again how elimination loops through preservation. As Melanie Klein underscored, Freud applies reality testing three times in this brief essay. The mourner tests for the reality of the loved one's absence in every port of recall. But erasure re-records and reality testing's eviction notice also ambivalently extends the afterlife of the departed unto undeath. To the extent that integration, according to Klein, can never be fully achieved, this is a wrap inside the inner world, the foundation of psychic reality in mourning. In the android test for the human ability to mourn, introduced by Philip K. Dick, the parameters, empathy and psychopathy, are also reversible manipulations going into the invention of ultimate weapons. Together they describe the close quarters in which the mourner must follow out the death wish to secure the innovation of living on. Following the success of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, Gertrude Stein suffered a bout of writer's block. Over and again, she recorded, it has not happened, until she was visited instead by W.B. Seabrook. We don't know what they talked about for three days. Seabrook was himself only recently a famous author. His 1929 The Magic Island, about the occult practices he encountered on Haiti, introduced the zombie to American popular culture. The first zombie film, White Zombie, which was in part an adaptation of Seabrook's book, had just joined the new Hollywood genre of occult horror. Bela Lugosi, already famous for his leading role in Browning's Dracula, played the zombie master whose given name was Murder. Stein, who knew she would be going back soon to tour in the train of the success of her novel, would have been curious about America today. Both Stein and Seabrook were known for the frank intensity of what they were willing to talk about. 
The topics in Seabrook's repertoire of great interest to Stein as well counted sadistic sex practices, binding and hanging, and cannibalism. The author of The Magic Island was also hurting from his earlier success, scrambling to hitch his subsequent efforts to his 1929 star. After the exchange, Seabrook went directly to the States, entered a psychiatric hospital for treatment of his acute alcoholism, and documented his sojourn in his ethnographic journalism style a year later in Asylum, which enjoyed the self-fulfilling success of the celebrity memoir. Following Seabrook's departure, Stein wrote her one and only murder mystery, Blood on the Dining Room Floor, which, though she never saw it through to publication, was the blockbuster that allowed her to compose a series of celebrity memoir novels in which she rewrote history as the killing off of undead centuries. In the setting of alternate history, vampires come out of hiding to rule over mankind. In one scenario, their control is history upon the inadvertent invention of the first lenses of magnification, byproducts of the official task assigned human mechanicians to design interesting playthings for their rulers. Vampires don't need a break from primary narcissism, the break you get with machines, which separate the body from itself to avert a crisis in uncanniness, which the zombie, in fact, embodies. In Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, the vampires judge inventiveness by standards of collectability and contain the uncanny by calling humans zombies. And because the vampires inhabit a relay of museum exhibits secured against death or loss, as Freud argued was the European condition prior to World War I, they lack the innovation enzyme. Once undeath can be conceived of as a germ, either the undead die or the living contract undeath en masse, aka living death. Either way, what the undead are good for in a science fiction setting is what Stein understood to be history, killing the century that has overstayed its welcome. According to Wars I Have Seen, it took Napoleon to kill off the 18th century he epitomized. Then came the big one, the 19th century, characterized by the theory of evolution it spread across the globe in the guise, Stein underscores, of white man's burden. Hitler was the quintessential avatar of the 19th century who destroyed it and himself in the setting of Europe. According to Stein, the Civil War had already ended the 19th century in the USA, which is why for quite some time to come, it was the oldest nation of the 20th century. When Jules Verne delivered the science fiction of rocket flight in 1865, he was on target in ascribing its invention to the Baltimore Gun Club, which applied the techno-benefits picked up in the testing grounds of the Civil War. It was by the blockade of the Civil War that modern spiritualism, the afterlife in science fiction, was displaced from the northern states to Europe. 
Once the last regional ties to Europe and the New World were liquidated with the Confederacy, the import of globalization reached the South, too, which yielded its occult stores to science fiction. In his Haitian memoir, Seabrook responds to his interlocutor's occult ideology of zombieism. It is a fixed rule of reasoning in America that we will never accept the possibility of a thing's being supernatural, so long as any natural explanation, even far-fetched, seems adequate. In American Letters, beginning with A. E. Van Vocht's 1941 story, Asylum, vampirism underwent a remake in sci-fi settings. According to Richard Matheson's 1954 novel, I Am Legend, the main text behind George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, it was an epidemic spread of undeath that massified the object relations of vampirism unto zombie-like consumerism. The paradoxical intervention that spawned the living dead, first identified by Romero as zombies in the sequel, Dawn of the Dead, illuminates the stronghold of the sole survivor in I Am Legend, where the recent past is recycled melancholically. Through the science fiction of an apocalyptic war's transmission of infectious undeath, vampirism in fact replaces the bulk rate of humanity. The traditional vampire found a new home, however, in human soul survivorship. In Romero's trilogy, as in Matheson's novel, the rites of mourning and proper interment are explicitly prohibited. The only service permitted the dead is disposal. Night of the Living Dead commences with siblings visiting the grave of their father on their invalid mother's behalf. The brother derides and invalidates their service. Even the wreath they have brought, he says, will be recycled and resold to them next year. It is at this point that the dead turn round in their graves, which no longer hold them within the span of immunization administered by the father's death. In the enormous cemetery at the start of Romero's 1968 film, we enter upon contact with the dead between the strict observance of taboo and the phantasmagoria of its transgression. At the start of the section the taboo upon the dead in Totem and Taboo, Freud falls back upon analogy with contagion. The taboo upon the dead is, if I may revert to the simile of infection, especially virulent among most primitive peoples. It is manifested in the first instance in the consequences that follow contact with the dead and in the treatment of mourners. Since proper mourning rituals are also conducted alongside the taboo restrictions, Freud concludes that the taboos tread in the ambivalent fine print of the services themselves, which commemorate the deceased at the same time as they ensure that the dead can never return. In animism, or the unconscious, there is no natural death. Every death is a murder which the victim seeks to avenge. If the dead are angry, it's because they found out that we caused them the harm coming our way. The vampire served Freud in Totem and Taboo as model for the transformation the deceased loved one undergoes through the one-on-one -on -one projective realignment of mixed feelings during morning's opening season. 
But it is Freud's turn to the taboo restrictions placed upon contact with the dead, all the dead, which corresponds to the first group portrait of the vampire. According to Matheson's origin story, his undead masses supply the missing link between the occult creatures of the night and the secular prospect of what is announced in Night of the Living Dead as epidemic of mass murder. In I Am Legend, the protagonist Robert Neville pitches his last stand against his own destruction, but in the first place against the siren wailing of the undead babes in the front yard, which he puts on mute by turning up the volume on the orchestral music his mother taught him to appreciate. Secured against the taboo bust of happy hour substitution, the basic needs or supplies in Robert's household and psychic economy reserve places for absence. His fortress home is the columbarium of his recent past. Next, he moved over to the uneven stacks of cans piled to the ceiling. He took down a can of tomato juice, then left the room that had once belonged to Kathy. Something else, too, is being conserved between the closet of cans and cannots and the canned music of his habitat. His scientist father died denying the existence of the vampire. Robert's recollection of the father's denial is the first reference to the vampire in the novel. But Robert's belief is the precondition for fighting the vampire for real— at the end, a no longer human survivor discloses to Robert that she belongs to a new group of living vampires. They've learned to regulate or defer the course of the infection by taking pills that combine blood with a drug preventing multiplication of the vampire germ. But Robert realizes that the metabolic regulation really means that a mutation has already taken place. Robert doesn't recognize in the clean-up elimination of the dead vampires by vigilantes of the New Order his own testing of subjects. His identification lies now with the vampires, who are as vulnerable as only the dead can be. With a sense of inward shock, he could not analyze in the rush of the moment. He realized that he felt more deeply toward the vampires than he did toward their executioners. Before the mass prospect of living, dead, 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 and mutating vampires, human mourning becomes the vampire. The post-apocalyptic science fiction setting in I Am Legend drives a split in undeath between one side that will come to be identified as zombieism and the side of survival that is looped through mutation. Sometimes a human survivor identifies his dead in a zombie still trying to come home. This trace element is what mutates into a new object relationship as embodied by Bob in Romero's Day of the Dead. On a feeding schedule and plugged into the earphones of the maternal sense around of music, Bob contains his violent tendencies. He also recognizes his research lab mentor as his father whose death at the end of the film he will mourn. 
The corporeality of mutation, its dependency upon a constant milieu of reproduction and death, is secondary to its acceleration in time, the sudden changes or jump cuts that bypass the slow time of evolutionary adjustment. Mutation, the fast track, and the theory of evolution sponsors the sci-fi conceit that any species, natural or artificial, can fast forward into survival of the fittest. Already in Samuel Butler's Erwan, the ultimate fit is seen to be with our machines, which reverse the prosthetic relationship and do the evolving for us. The first historical scheme that could address the impact of new machines, therefore, was a byproduct of evolution. Evolution can also mean that it takes but one advance in machine technology to redraw the map of adaptation, ultimately to war. The science fiction of travel and time, however, can overtake and remake the evolutionary machine history turning on mutation and breach its controlling interest in the future. In Robert Heinlein's 1959 short story, All You Zombies, the survival of the species is secured through time travel, which multiplies soul survival across alternate realities in double time. The unnamed protagonist is secret agent in a service that uses a device dated 1992 to travel in time and reverse damages at their onset. However, the mistake of 72, which belongs to the near future that Matheson's 1954 novel also inhabits, can't be undone. It either is or it isn't, and there won't be another like it. At the bar, which the protagonist tends in 1970, a customer tells his story. He is a former intersex unwed mother, Jane, who was turned upon giving birth into a man. Next, his or her daughter was snatched from the hospital. The customer telling his story assumes it was the baby's father who duped Jane and then ruined her thoroughly. The bartender takes the dupe on a time trip to get back at the man who abandoned him. The protagonist's stopovers in the past, in 1945, 1963, and 1964, reenact Jane's story. But it is the protagonist's own story. By rewinding the historical or mythic past around him, he is father, mother, and child. He skips the mistake of 72 and delivers the current version of himself as new recruit for time service in 1985. When he gives his report in 1993, he counts 40 recruitments in the course of the stint of his time service. Then I glanced at the ring on my finger, the snake that eats its own tail forever and ever. I know where I came from, but where did all you zombies come from? In real time, he is like Robert Neville, sole survivor of a plague of living death. Heinlein's protagonist, however, doesn't seethe the future of survival to mutation. By the time paradox, or as Count Dracula characterizes his advantage, the time that is on his side, Heinlein's protagonist populates multiple alternate realities with versions of himself linked and separated by the vaults of reality testing.
1922. Gotthard Günther, who started out a German philosopher and logician, recasting through Hegel the binary logic associated with Aristotle as but the prehistory of a more comprehensive, multi-valued logic, discovered both cybernetics and science fiction upon emigrating to the U.S. in 1940 with his Jewish wife. He subsequently worked out what might be called a new metaphysics of science fiction, previews of which were published in the 1950s. In articles that appeared in the science fiction magazine Startling Stories and in forewords and commentaries for his editions of German translations of American works of science fiction. The majority of his speculations, however, awaited posthumous publication under the title the American Apocalypse. While in the decline of the West, Oswald Spengler famously forecast that the final Faustian phase of regional civilization was phasing out without the prospect of succession, Günther countered that the future was already upon us of a new civilization that would be planetary, the staging area for an intergalactic civilization that would no longer be earthbound. While so-called primitive culture has always been a planetary phenomenon, the civilizations that hailed from the East were tied to specific geographically circumscribed areas, which they required, according to Spengler, as their mother Earth. The visions of outer space presuppose a universal planetary civilization and condition or determine a new non-classical conception of reality. The period of the Enlightenment was, Günther writes, the first major symptom of such a coming psychic alleviation. Conceived as declaration of independence from long-standing metaphysical traditions, the Enlightenment was succeeded in Europe by Romanticism, which brought back the metaphysical mother load. But the Enlightenment was transferred directly to the settlement of the long unacknowledged continent. Günther's reading of the future is based on the conundrum that so many discoveries of the Americas launched from both shores of the regional civilizations prior to Columbus's accidental arrival there, he was, of course, looking for a new way to India, went completely unacknowledged. Acceptance of a new world was the first step toward one world and its de-geocentering upon the final frontier of outer space. In the wide-open layout of neighborhoods in Southern California, which relied on and reflected the car as sole means of transport, Günther recognized the address rehearsal for life on foreign planets. The aloneness and emptiness belonging to the period of transition, the waiting around for the conquest of space, is, he argued, but the negative historical aspect of the decline of traditional metaphysical supports which also has positive implications. Grinta, this ambivalence of the spiritual situation is a necessary precondition for a positive historical future of the new world. Mere suffering drains, reduces, and makes sterile as long as it isn't able to transcend itself into something other. Grinta declares the idea of the zombie 
the starting point for an American metaphysics of death, although the idea as it stands is nothing other than, Gunther writes, a mythologization of the tendency to separate out all elements of death from the life of the soul or psyche. Any content of the psyche, however, can only be objectified and attributed to that which is factual or dead. The consequence of the tendency for which the zombie is mascot, therefore, is that all phenomenal life can be assigned to the realm of death. Perceived life isn't life, but a walking corpse. In his 1967 collection of essays, Hollywood, The Haunted House, screenwriter Paul Mayersberg identifies two lost generations. The ghosts of the past play catch-as-catch-can with the living ghosts of the future. Mayersberg closes his ghost frame on the departure of Hollywood projection from the science fiction of the new world in order to form a more perfect union with the romantic background of Europe, which is yet another escape from the reality of 20th century America. While the new ghosts harbor a deep resentment against Europe, which comes fundamentally from the knowledge that Europe is old but won't die and is hanging on, the old ghosts are tempted to seek integration, not so much with the rest of America, but with Europe. That the old ghosts of Hollywood, needing darkness and pastness, have to find a new home, means that in the 1960s, they can't stand the sound of data processing. Hollywood has always lived and worked in a world of fantasy. The new ghosts are the humans going on zombies in Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, the follow-up to his 2013 vampire movie, which is where the old ghosts are. In 2019, the Centerville locals decorate themselves with eclectic fantasy from the nickname of the token hippie Frodo and his Nosferatu t-shirt to the police officer's Star Wars keychain. The new mortician in town, the only recognizable continuity shot from Jarmusch's vampire film by dint of her exotic independence and because played by Tilda Swinton, masters skills of oriental swordplay and entertains eccentric ideas about making up the corpses under her care. Adept at warding off the living dead with her decapitating swords, she joins forces with the police, at one point offering to look after the station while the officer buddies drive off to combat the zombies all over town. When she's alone with the computer, she fills the screen with streaming symbols, a scene reminiscent either of devil movies or SF. It's the latter. She has contacted the flying saucer that beams her up and takes her home. By her iconic look, she brings back the European vampire of Only Lovers Left Alive and cites Van Vogt's premier New World vampire story in which the undead travel through outer space. All the while below, the New World predicament of the resounding science fictionalization of undeath in I Am Legend is on the rampage. Although ecological disaster resulting from a heightening of technology not yet quite current already advances a sci-fi motivation for the zombie epidemic, the Flying Saucer's appearance would be the most extraneous B-picture reference in The Dead Don't Die if we weren't by now ready for it. 
with the shredder of zombieism, the indie film identifies and takes apart the heimat of blockbusters in the borderlands of fantasy and science fiction. Günther argues in The American Apocalypse that the mechanical brain is the technologization of what the zombie mythologizes, the overcoming of finitude by getting it over with already, by excluding it until that's all there is. Günther concludes his 1952 commentary on Asimov's iRobot. The American intuits darkly that so-called world history belongs to another hemisphere and is not at all his concern. Anything in which one is no longer psychically involved becomes one of life's technical difficulties. Because the man of the Western Hemisphere does not yet have his own new categories of experience, his ideas of history cannot but resemble the cogitation of a factory director contemplating improvements in production. Gunther also addresses what folds out in tandem with this production line, the American spirit of demolition, which necessarily comes before the world religions can begin to become one and cosmic. The split between personal and impersonal versions of the absolute, for example, can only be negotiated by someone who for himself has undergone a heretofore unknown process of separation from subject and object, in which every trace of what belongs to objectivity's realm of the dead, the realm controlled through thought, is removed from the realm of the subject. The American way of death, Gunther writes, already breaks with the old view of death as intervention from some transcendental realm and as guidance out of this world. The American has unlearned dying a personal death. Gunther registers the zombie as identifiable symptom of the onset of a suffering that, capable of transcending itself into something other, could supply the restart of consciousness and inner space to match the prospect of outer space. That's why Gunther presents the zombie as rebounding from a logical impasse into the aftermath that sounds like it doesn't compute. A zombie is a walking corpse in possession of a second and dead life, and because he has already died and thus left death behind, is immortal. But death is absolutely unique. You cannot die twice. However, if the you is conjugated between you there, the other, and W, the psycho, then we must count two deaths. This countdown is the secular world's afterlife in finitude. During World War I, Freud argued that primal man had no problem killing off enemies, rivals, anyone who was in the way, but that this killing spree was pulled up short before the loss of a loved one, a good object. Primal man lives on in psychic reality as the death wish. In the course of mourning a loved one, the untenable admixture of murderous feelings, which underwent emergency projection, must be integrated, which doesn't mean neutralized. In the end, the mourning process requires that the W, the psycho in you, attend the prospect of the deceased's second death. This does not necessarily entail a sentencing by your agency or acknowledgement. 
the mourner's entry upon substitution suffices to curtail, displace, or subsume the extended scenarios of identification. That outer space is big enough to be entrusted with clocking the finitude between two deaths is the underlying conceit of the 2014 film Interstellar. The astronaut protagonist Cooper recalls his deceased wife's words in contemplation of their young children. Now we're just here to be memories for our kids. There isn't enough room in generational time to avert the disaster of loss that afflicts the near future of Earth. Cooper risks a mission impossible to secure more time and resources for the dying planet, or a double of Earth, for starting over. After a succession of failures, there are two survivors, Cooper and Amelia, the daughter of Cooper's former professor and father figure who designed the two-pronged rescue attempt. Amelia is jettisoned off to a habitable planet, a station of the original mission, while Cooper must transmit the saving message, the formula for restoration of life on Earth via integration within the multiverse, to his daughter, Murphy, now an established scientist. Their interface was all along outside linear time. A child when her father departed, Murphy was already attuned to poltergeist-like aberrations imparting themselves in her bedroom. This communication from the other side held the place for the paternal transmission of rescue from outer space, which she later receives and carries out. Cooper, who, like his co-survivor Amelia, has remained unchanged inside the bubble of relativity, arrives at last in the multiverse in time for his aged daughter's dying. She sends him away, however, to join Amelia on her lost planet and enter the substitution that can reabsorb the mother of memories like the multiverse Earth. Cooper departs once again, this time to traverse the span between the beloved daughter's first death, which she won't let him witness, and a second death that is at once certain, given, but equally far away on a compass that's cosmic. In a flashback, Robert Neville breaches among the cans of soul survivorship the cannot of Gunda's death sentence. In rehearsal since the onset of secularization, together with its byproducts, haunting and mourning, the suffering that alone, according to Gunther, can give a new history and a new metaphysics to the planetary civilization to come, indwells I Am Legend. After his dead daughter Kathy was taken away and consigned to mass cremation, he is determined to provide proper burial for his wife Virginia, who goes next. But then it is two in the morning, two days after he buried her, two eyes looking at the clock, two ears picking up the hum of its electric chronology, two lips pressed together, two hands lying on the bed. He tried to rid himself of the concept, but everything in the world seemed suddenly to have dropped into a pit of duality. And then he discovered, upon Virginia's return from the grave, that there are two deaths. Gunther underscored that fundamental preparations for a new planetary civilization have been underway since the 16th century. 
In I Am Legend, the sole survivor derives the legibility or legend to the experimental mapping of his impasse from two texts, Dracula and Hamlet, in which mourning is on a schedule of two deaths. Between the evidence of elimination and the pages of Dracula, the reality of vampirism can be addressed. It is the symptom picture of an infectious disease to which he applies himself as experimental scientist, like father, like son. He obtains thus a greater containment of the scream memories from his recent traumatic past. The objective of mourning straddles the pit of duality, not only semantically during mourning's opening season, but also syntactically through the sentencing of two deaths. As we saw in Interstellar, the decision in lieu of Hamletian hesitation can pass interminably through the temporal paradox of morning's outer space transport. Comprehended from the vantage of the first science fiction to extract zombie second death from the vampire's deferral position of the first death, the emphasis falls far more resolutely. Early in the 1993 B-movie, Last Action Hero, we attend school with the fanboy who watches, in place of Laurence Olivier as Hamlet, his hero Slater, or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hamlet, in the role of action figure, chooses not to be, which is now the transitive sentencing of the rot, the lot he eliminates in the fortress he detonates. Only thus can the malingering on of the lapse into lifelessness give way to innovation. What crosses Robert's mind when he visits the grave of his wife is on the same page with Hamlet's paternal ghost's demand. I'm here, he thought, I'm back, remember me. Although he speaks the injunction of a father's ghost, he's not commanding or asking but rather he remembers a line that resonates differently inside him. He's not a ghost, nor is his wife, he saw to that. And he is not another Hamlet. Since his wife brought home the realization that there are two deaths, Robert has not hesitated to carry out the unfinished business of putting the already dead to rest. Robert Neville's sole survivorship becomes the legend for a new planetary civilization, which, fully theorized by Freud in Totem and Taboo, has been in preparation since the age of discovery in the occult margins of morning's compass between life and death. <laughs> 